Luke 1, and so you could maybe join me in Matthew chapter 1. We'll get there in a moment. In this season of Christmas or Advent, which means coming, we are looking for joy. We're looking for joy in the story of the nativity. Nativity means the occasion of one's birth. So we're simply speaking of the event surrounding the birth of Christ. We're looking at that story and trying to learn from its primary characters about joy. So the purpose is to look at the story, to know something of God's gift to us, but to let that grow into a joy that sustains us in this coming week, whatever that will hold. There's so much in our world that threatens joy. We need to exercise ourselves toward joy. We need to pursue it. And so we're considering five sermons, looking at the five main characters of the nativity scene to teach us these lessons of joy. Last week, we considered the wise men. They taught us the joy of pursuing the truth, a pursuit of the truth that is paved with and ends in joy. Our second lesson is drawn from the account of angels. Angels. There seems to be an inordinate amount of angelic detail in the nativity accounts. So when you read through the Gospels, you you find a lot of information about angels in this nativity story. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by angelic information. Old Testament and New Testament give us a few accounts of angels appearing. But in the Gospel accounts of Christ's birth, there seems to be a lot of angel talk. So think of them in chronological order. You heard the first two accounts from Luke chapter 1. The angel of the Lord, and later we're told he's Gabriel, appears to Zechariah, announcing the birth of the forerunner, which would have immediately, in that language that was told Zechariah, informed him from his knowledge of the minor prophets that this was the sign that Messiah was coming. When you see the ministry of the forerunner, Messiah will quickly come to the temple, the prophet said. The second angelic appearance then followed the scripture reading earlier as the angel Gabriel talks to Mary and announces to her that she will be the mother of the Son of God taking on human flesh through her womb. Well, a third account, the angel appears to Joseph. It's not long. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke chapter 2 gives us the fourth probably the most familiar angelic appearance, that being to the shepherds. There on their hillside, we read in Luke 2, verse 8, in the same region where there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Well, there's one more angelic appearance that surrounds the birth of Christ. We may be tempted to think it was the angels appearing to the wise men, telling them to go a different way home, but the text doesn't specify whether that was an angel or not. It simply says the wise men were warned in a dream. But we do know from Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, after the wise men departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. The angel also appears to Joseph at the end of their time in Egypt in order for them to return. So five angelic appearances that surround the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. God the Son, taking on human form. Now, we might use the word become at times. God didn't become something other than God. God the Son took on, in addition to his Godhead, human nature. So he had these two natures, one person but with two natures. Uh, Lest we diminish God by saying he only became human or part of God became human. That's not the case. Jesus was indeed God, but he was God in the flesh. The word incarnate, when we speak of the incarnation, simply means in the flesh. And so we have to try to wrap our minds around God who is not in bodily form. God is a spirit and does not have a body like man, was the catechism that I learned. God doesn't have a body, and yet the Son of God took on or was veiled in 
flesh, as we sang in the song. So when this birth of Christ takes place and God is dwelling among us, we have these five angelic appearances, these stories, and our task this morning is to take these five angelic appearances and ask ourselves, what do we learn from all this angel talk? Because the Christmas story of God becoming flesh would carry along just fine without any information about angels. We wouldn't lack nothing of the Christmas essence if we heard nothing of these angels. And yet again and again, we're told about the angels. And so I want to gather all this data together and learn this big idea that will flesh out in the outline on your notes. If from the wise men we should learn that we find joy in the pursuit of truth, I want us to look at the angels and learn this. You should find joy in serving the king. You should find joy in serving the king. So the big question is, what do these angelic appearances teach us about serving the king? Because this week, if Christ doesn't come back, and if he gives us breath to keep living, our purpose should be to serve the king. Jesus made it real clear in that Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God. You have a king to serve. You have a Lord who should be the master of how you live this week. So if we're supposed to be serving the king this week, how do these angelic appearances help us to understand what that means? So let's look at them. And you can hopefully read over some of these throughout this month. Visit these narrative accounts. Ask yourself the question, why did God give us so many details about the event of the birth of Christ? especially about the angels. So what do these angelic appearances at Advent teach us about serving the king? Number one, I think they teach us that serving means doing God's will. Doing God's will. Now, that, that, those are familiar words, but they're, they're big words because right away we think, oh man, is it God's will for me to go to the mission field? Is it God's will for me to marry so-and-so? Is it God's will? And we always jump to the big decisions of life and think we're supposed to wrestle with God's will. But the reality is the scriptures generally present God's will exactly the opposite. It's a very routine and mundane thing that in our pursuit of wisdom, we exercise our choices daily using that wisdom to generally do what is right. So the clearest expressions of God's will in the scriptures are, are real simple things. It's God's will that we live in sexual purity, Thessalonians says. It's God's will to give thanks. He says, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God. There's a daily, simple holiness that is the truest, most manifest expression of the will of God in our lives day by day. So when I say serving means doing God's will, I don't want us thinking big life-changing thoughts, 
though the Holy Spirit may put them squarely in your mind to consider. We are simply trying to ask a question about the angelic appearances at Advent and how that reveals to us a life, an existence defined by doing the will of someone other than ourselves. We are thinking about who angels serve in this first point. Four of the five stories refer to the angel that appears as an angel of the Lord. It's an angel described as an angel, though, that has a place where they fit in, a place of belonging, and it's a belonging to the Lord. So when we read angel of the Lord, we're remembering this this being isn't the authority. They're an angel of the Lord. Angels do what God wants done. Their purpose is connected to his lordship. If there is a Lord and there is an angel of the Lord, then that angel's purpose, by that definition, has something to do with the lordship that is being leveraged here in the title, Angel of the Lord. Lordship, then, is significant to the existence of angels. I think Gabriel gives us his simple yet clear job description when he's talking to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19. He's given him this grand message. You're going to have a son in your old age, and that son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah, which means Messiah is coming. And rather than Zechariah thinking, hallelujah, the Lord has fulfilled a thousand, two thousand year old promise, at least to Abraham, that this son is coming. Go back even further to the Garden of Eden. The seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. Rather than rejoicing, he immediately steps back and says, wait a minute, that's not going to work because my wife and I are too old. Gabriel rebukes him, but the rebuke is in a form of who he is and why he would be questioned. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. When we think of the angel of the Lord, their existence being tied to lordship, we realize this angel has a job description. To stand in the presence of the Lord and to be sent. Not to exercise any desire, any will, any choice, but to simply submit his will to the will of another and do whatever the Lord wants. That's what angels do. Beyond the nativity, we see this clear purpose of angels doing God's will in two notable New Testament passages. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus is being arrested in the garden. You remember what he says about angels? He says they're standing there waiting for the Lord to give them his will. But he says it this way. 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Why? Because they're all just in a holding pattern. They're all just waiting to carry out the Lord's will. They are angels of the Lord. And they stand and they wait to do what he wants done. Jude, that short little book before the book of Revelation, really just one chapter, and yet we have an interesting angelic reference there that reminds us of the angel's purpose in the negative way. Jude writes, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, yes, there were those that came out of Egypt who did not believe and they perished in the wilderness. And, Jude says, there were those angels who left their rightful place of stand and be sent. You just do the will of the Lord. But they left that place and they too will find eternal judgment. That's the argument Jude is making. Our task in Jude is simply to see that angels were created to be doers of the will of their Lord. So what does this mean for us? It means we were recreated. We are new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, new creations in Christ Jesus. And with that new creation comes a new purpose. In the language Paul writes there in chapter 5, he says, Now you are ambassadors of Christ. You stand in his place in an effort to reconcile lost men to the Savior. You're sent ones. Oh, not like the angels of the scriptures, but similarly, you are now purposed You are now commissioned with this task of representing the will of your father to do his will. The devil will tempt you to sing the song of Eden this week. I did it my way. That's the struggle. Your way of bullying your children into obedience, your way of manipulating your spouse, your way of undermining your boss but still getting the job done somehow, your way. We have our, our way of doing things, but you're not commissioned to do it your way. You're commissioned to do the Lord's will, to do it His way. And those are the only choices that we have. Go ahead and and do it your way or, no, remember what God has said. And every new story you watch this week or every internal struggle of temptation this week will be 
the lie of you can do it your way or you do it God's way. And that temptation sets up the great struggle of becoming like Christ. Will I submit my will to the will of my heavenly Father? But you see, becoming like Christ, I can look at Christ and see how he did this. After living his life in surrender to the will of his Father, he prays in John 17 on the way from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he makes it clear in that prayer to his Father that he has done all of his Father's will. He's done it completely. He has walked that path of perfect obedience for us. That prayer is expressing to us the gospel. There is our hope. Christ's perfect record of righteousness, his perfect obedience to the Father's will can be ours when we put our faith in him. This is why he came. To accomplish the law, yes, but the law as an expression of the righteousness of God. So now our task as these new creatures, these ambassadors of Christ, is to reveal God's will, to show what holiness looks like, to live out our faith, our purity, our thanksgiving, our kindness, because this is the will of God. And we simply stand, we take in his presence, and we do his will. Serving means doing the will of God. Number two, what do the Advent angels teach us about serving the king? They teach us that serving means sharing God's truth. Here we are thinking about how the angels serve. What do they actually do? And from these five accounts and your study of angels throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, you see that their purpose is primarily wrapped up in their title. They are angels, and that word means messenger. They are instruments of revelation. They communicate God's truth. For us to learn from how the angels serve, we must make a distinction between their message and ours, at least in some way. The angels' message is what we might call more direct. They are sent by God with revelation and generally new revelation to God's people. We're trying to learn from that and we have to realize We don't communicate new revelation from God to people. I'm not saying God doesn't speak to our hearts. We might use that language in some way, oppress upon us some direction, some decision. But whatever God would use or do to speak to you has no bearing whatsoever on me. My allegiance must be to the revealed word of God that we have in Scripture. So we're not saying God doesn't speak through dreams or impress on hearts or do things. It's just that that would be to you, and even that must be subject to Scripture. So when I say we learn from the angels, and if they share truth, we share truth as well, I'm not saying we share new revelation and that should command authority over people. 
we have to apply this now to who we are and what we're called to do. Our message is indirect. We're simply pointing to God's existing revelation. We're not saying, I have new truth. We're saying, do you remember what God has said? Can I share with you what God said through Abraham? Or can I share with you how God's promise to Adam and Eve is is coming to light here in the Christmas season? Can I tell you what God has told his church about comfort in times of sorrow? Or can I come alongside you and, and share with you what God has said about the hope of resurrection in the face of death? Our message is indirect, but we share the same living words of God. Don't be confused. When the angels spoke God's words, they were living and powerful. And when we communicate God's words that he's given us in Scripture, they are living and powerful. We share words of comfort. And like the angels often said, we too can say to each other, hey, listen, don't be afraid. Here's what God has said. When the angels share words of grace, Mary, you are highly favored. We too can remind people of God's grace and favor shown to us, not in the form of a virgin birth, but in the form of a crucified Savior. God has favored us. And sometimes in our discouragement, we need somebody to come alongside and remind us that God's grace That somewhat impersonal word, as we tend to use it, grace, it's the substance all by itself, right? Wrong. It's the grace that God gives. He has graced us. He has favored us. We can share words of exhortation. Just as the angel exhorted Zechariah, telling him, Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. I am an archangel. I I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent with his message. You, You need not question it. Sometimes we need to come alongside a brother or sister in Christ and say, listen, I I know life is beating you up, but you need to hear God's promise. And don't doubt it. And it's loving, but it's firm. Because God's promises are firm. They're floundering and we have the anchor. Hand it to them and let it drop to the bottom in all its firmness so that they can be stabilized. We have truth to share this season. There are those who are lost and need to hear the good news. And we, not as angels per se, but as messengers, as ambassadors, have the good news that God has indeed made a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. The angels have a significant role in the Christmas narrative, but it's, it's not because of what we know of them. Generally, we only know that they were bright, or at least accompanied by some brightness, but not always. They're just not significant because of what we know of them. They are significant because of the message they shared. You don't need to be a somebody. We've already learned you're supposed to submit your will to the will of another. And now in this point, we're seeing 
You don't have to be a somebody. You just have to represent somebody. You just have to represent the God of the universe who has revealed himself, and you know what he said. So share that with others. Find your significance this season in sharing God's truth. If Christ is the reason for the season, then share that message. Let significance be found in the message. But, but again, the temptation is going to be, this year will be a good Christmas if, and we'll fill in the blanks with a lot of other things that may or may not be the blessings God gives this season. Let significance be found in fulfilling our purpose of sharing God's truth. That's how we serve the king. So once more we ask, what do these Advent angels teach us about serving the king? Number three, serving means hoping, hoping in God's gospel. Here we think about why angels serve. Why some angels serve the king of kings and in these stories have have brought the good news of Christ being born while others are kept in these chains of gloomy darkness awaiting the final day of judgment. Why do these angels serve? Angels serve because they believe in the triumph of the gospel, meaning God's plan to save sinners will work. That's what angels believe. Now, Peter reminds us that they might not fully know it by experience, but they long to to look at this, it says. They're fascinated by this plan of their maker saving those who have rebelled against him. They serve knowing that God is glorified in the salvation of sinners. So we hear in their Christmas Advent encounters, we hear the gospel hope. To Joseph, the angel says, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There was joy in serving the king for that angel because he hoped that this message was true. He believed that the one who sent him with this message of rescue was actually able to carry it out. To Zechariah, the angel makes it clear that his son John will prepare a people for the Lord's coming by changing them or at least the hope of change, from being disobedient to being just. He's using the language of the prophet to remind Zechariah of who this son will be, the forerunner, through his preaching of repentance, bringing the disobedient to a declaration of being just. To Mary, the angel speaks of the kingdom of God, and says that Mary's son, Jesus, will be given a throne on which to reign. That angel believed that the gospel was going to work. 
and that this Jesus, seemingly a helpless babe in a manger, would actually rule the nations. And they would come in their adoration and be welcomed by their faith in the Messiah into everlasting joy, or they would be forced to bow and to proclaim that Jesus is Lord before their eternal judgment. But this child is king. The angel believes that. To the shepherds, the angel announces good news of great joy for all peoples. And what is it? A savior is born. The angel believed that this Savior born would change the world because sinners would be converted. The gospel is at the heart of their message and their mission. Angels served the king by hoping in that king's promise of rescue. If we are students of these Advent angels, then we would not be surprised to hear Jesus' words in Luke 15. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's just not an introduction to the joy of the angels. We're seeing that in this Christmas narrative, that every message includes the hope of the gospel of the reigning King Jesus. Angels love seeing the mission's success. So when some Cambodian believer or or sinner comes to faith in Christ and becomes a believer, Paul would tell us, that's fruit to your account for having dropped a few dollars in a box to fund mission efforts. And Jesus says, the angels who hope in this gospel look at another sinner repenting and the word goes out through the ranks and the angels of heaven rejoice. One of you may need to come to faith in Christ this season and see this babe in a manger as the king, as the rescuer, as God's plan to reconcile you to himself. The angels rejoice at that. They love this story. Every time it happens, they love it again. They're like toddlers in the nursery. You finish that board book, and what do they say? They never say, okay, I'll go and occupy myself now and let you rest. Again. Again, they say. The angels love this story. And so should we. Take heart and have hope in the power of the gospel this season. Believe that the gospel still works. Can you right now think of a sinner that you know? Is their lostness pretty obvious to you? So how does that stand up to our hope in the gospel? The angel said, a savior is born. 
They said sinners can be made righteous when they were once disobedient. The angel said to Mary, Jesus is king. The angel said to the shepherds, Jesus is the savior of all the peoples of the earth. Take the message everywhere. Hope in and pray for the light of the gospel, that it would shine into the hearts of those who are blinded by the God of this world, Paul writes in Corinthians. My friends, you are not an angel. You never will be. But like the angels, you're commissioned, you're sent, you're an ambassador with a message. You are a participant in God's plan, God's agenda, God's purpose, God's glory, God's gospel, God's victory. As you do his will, as you share his truth, and as you hope in his good news, a Savior has come. Heavenly Father, stir us up, stir us up to, to great hope in this good news of a Savior. We, we know that it has touched our lives, and every week it resonates as we sing and as we see in the word the hope of salvation. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior of sinners, and that we are secure in him. And this gives us the foretaste of eternal and perfect joy. Now stir us up with a love and compassion for those around us who need to hear this good news. Make us your messengers, your ambassadors. Help us to picture in our minds with an eye of faith what it means to stand in your stead reconciling sinners to God. What a, what a responsibility, and yet what a privilege. And so may the joy of Christmas be a joy that is ours as we serve you, our King. Thank you for your benevolent, wise, and perfect lordship in our lives. Give us faith to trust you this week in every step that you would ordain for us. And as we take those steps, may we do it as your messengers, your servants. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.